I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Now, everyone knows Bob Schieffer's a newsman, but not everyone knows how he became an anchorman. He wrote a song about it. Let's have a listen. Well, I left this job that I just took, started practicing my sincere look. They said I had the face of a man with heart. They wrote me some lines, taught me a style, drew a happy face on the script where I should smile, and the key demographics went right off the chart. I have to say they pay me good, a whole lot better than Stucky's ever would, and a cute little stage manager gives me all my cues. Selling tractor hats and pumping gas, that's all part of my long ago past. Now I just sit there and read the news. So now you know, and here's Bob Schieffer. Today we have with us Soledad O'Brien, award-winning journalist, producer, documentary filmmaker, and news anchor. Early on, she co-anchored Weekend Today on NBC, contributed to NBC's Today and NBC Nightly News, then in 2003 joined CNN, where she created and produced the award-winning and highly acclaimed documentary series, Black in America and Latino in America. She reported on political stories and anchored their morning news program. While there, she earned a Peabody Award for her coverage of Hurricane Katrina and the BP oil spill. She's also won three Emmy Awards for her reporting on race in America and the 2012 presidential uh, campaign and election. In addition to all of this, she hosts several special events for the National Geographic Channel and in 2013 started her own media company, Starfish Media Group, which produces series, documentaries, digital stories, live events, and filmed entertainment. Soledad, you are what we call a journalist entrepreneur. <laughs> you have literally kind of done it all. Oh, I just sound you, busy, don't you I? do it all, and you tell us... Just tell us how your career evolved in such a way that it has. You know, I think it was really uh, about picking things that were interesting to me. Uh, certainly, um, when I started at the Today Show, uh, having an opportunity to have a platform to do a show was a great opportunity. Um, but then going to CNN, I got to dig in a little more and do reporting on the kinds of stories that I thought were particularly interesting, stories that were uncomfortable or stories that you know, usually questions that were followed by long, awkward silences because we were talking about uncomfortable things, race and class and opportunity and lack of opportunity. And so people sometimes found themselves just embarrassed by what they were talking about. And I really enjoyed digging into those uncomfortable moments, if you will. Um, I, uh, I, I'm biracial, my mom's black, my dad's white, and so conversations about race were particularly interesting to me. My mom's Cuban. 
conversations about ethnicity are always really interesting to me. So I think I got to the point where I was just digging into stuff that, that I liked. Uh, and, and I think it's a real blessing when you have an opportunity in your career to just, you know, go through and pick the things that interest you and sort of ignore the things that don't interest you. I politics, obviously, and I'm talking to Mr. Politics here. Uh, but politics, of course, fascinating because it's not, it's not really the horse race. I never enjoyed covering the horse race. I really enjoyed talking about the American population and demographics and demographic shifts in this country. And so uh, it's, I've just sort of found it interesting to, to really have a, a lens on that with my own you know, background as a first-generation American. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in, in uh, what you just said and about asking people questions where you get an uncomfortable silence. And certainly race relations is one of those, those questions. Where do you think we are on race relations in this country right now? You know, uh, from the 35,000-foot view, frankly, we're much better than we have been in the past. I remember we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the, the uprising or the riots in Detroit, so clearly we're not at a time in America where there are race riots happening. Um, we, my parents, when they came to this country in the 1950s and started dating, no one would serve them together because they were an interracial couple. They couldn't get married in, in Maryland because their marriage was illegal until the Supreme Court overturned the ban on interracial marriage. So all of those things would tell you we're much better than we were then. I, I think we're at a time, though, where these conversations about race are, are challenging. And I think, obviously, in the current election cycle, um, a lot of nastiness and hostility around race, I think, has really uh, been kind of standard in the conversations in this election cycle. So it's a very, um, it's a very uncomfortable time. I think people are depressed and unhappy about it. Uh, but I, I would argue that it's, it's never really been fantastic. So we're better, certainly, than the late 1950s, uh, but we still have a long way to go. Um, you know, we, we still have, as a country, we've never really wanted to have very frank discussions about race. And I understand it. It's, it's kind of the third rail of conversations. I mean, it's really unpleasant for a lot of people. You know, uh, some people say race relations are kind of the third rail uh, in, in American politics and in, in American life. How do you prepare to cover uh, stories like uh, black in America or Latino in America, uh, from just the standpoint of a journalist, how do you how do you do that? You know, I think it's all about just prepping around data points and really then asking people questions that relate back to um, real data. At the end of the day, it's, it cannot be a conversation about how you feel, but often you're interviewing people around how they feel reflected in a data point. Um, so specifically, I remember interviewing a guy who uh, had kind of made it. He was in Little Rock, Arkansas, and his cousin was one of the first people to integrate Little Rock Central High School. So he was the next generation, 10 years younger than his cousin, and still Little Rock was challenging for him as a student. So he would talk about white students, you know, pushing him into water fountains and just the, the sheer hostility between the white and black students at Little Rock Central High School in the 1950s, late 50s. And so uh, he, he makes it, he makes it big. He does really well, he's successful. He moves out of his neighborhood, which is 
overwhelmingly black and somewhat poor and working class and moves into the wealthier white neighborhood. And he has a big old house. And now he's being stopped all the time by the police as he pulls into his own driveway. Happens multiple times. And he, I sit down to have Thanksgiving dinner with him and his family because we were shooting over the holidays. And I meet his three sons, all of whom are dating white girls. And this is a guy who has told me in the previous days how much he really dislikes white people. And you're like, oh. In fact, we finished our interview and I was like, we have to set up again because clear, I didn't realize that this is what your family dynamic was. And so, you know, I said to him, so, you know, how do you feel about all of your sons dating white girls? And literally, it was what he didn't say. <laughs> One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, just complete silence. And then he sort of ekes out, I'm fine with it. But clearly he's not. And, and so I guess for me, what I've enjoyed in interviews is, is pushing people on that moment where the personal intersects with the historical and the data point around interracial marriage, around what we know about uh, civil rights and American history, and sort of getting this guy's personal experience to confront what is obviously a conflict in his own head and in his life. So I, I take a lot of um, joy, frankly, maybe that's a bad word. <laughs> but I just, I take a lot of satisfaction in pushing people to really articulate how they're feeling about race. We did an interview with a guy named Joe Miller for a Latino in America doc. And Joe Miller gets up every morning and he hangs up a Marine Corps flag on his house, the American flag on his house, and the Confederate flag hangs proudly on his house every single day. And I, he is in um, Shenandoah, Pennsylvania, which is, a, I'm sure you know, a mile by a mile square, tiny. And he's really made it his business to try to run Latinos out of Shenandoah. Uh, he's just absolutely against, heavily against undocumented workers, but generally hates Latinos. And we spent a lot of time together. And at some point I said to him, so why do you hate Latinos so much? He said, listen, they steal jobs. I was like, wow, you're very emotional about it. What job did you lose? And he looks at me like I'm crazy. He said, I didn't lose a job. I said, oh, well, you know, you're so intense. Like, you must have a friend then who lost a job. Tell me about your friend who lost a job. And he looks at me like I'm insane. I don't have a friend who lost. I said, so Joe, who are we talking about? <laughs> Who's the person who lost their job? And he looks me in the eye and he says, the black people. I'm here for the black people. And I literally burst out laughing. I say, you hang a Confederate flag on your home every morning, but you're here for the black people in Shenandoah. I mean, those moments, I think, where people contradict themselves, where they, you, you sort of get to confront them with their, their contradictions. I find just a lot of satisfaction in a moment like that. By the way, Shenandoah has about 10 black people in, in the entire city. You know, so you get to push back. And I'll tell you, in both cases, both of those men called me after our doc aired and told me how much they enjoyed the interview. Like, the, you know, because they felt that they were heard. This was the truth for them. This is what they believe. And to be able to, to highlight someone's story and not edit it down to a seven-second soundbite, but to really show various elements in American society, I think that's just an incredible opportunity. Let me ask you this. Do you, how do you think we're doing, and I mean the press in general, uh, communications in general, race has always been a big story in America. Sometimes we've covered it well, sometimes with courage, sometimes not so. How do you think we're doing today? Meh. I think we do a, a, a fair to middling to poor job. I'll, I'll give you an example. I think our, our big challenge is we don't give any context. So in Baltimore, when the CVS is burning, 
you know, people are rioting at the CVS, but, but, but where are we? And what was happening in that neck of the woods? And why would people be rioting at a CVS? We, we often, as the press, don't want to sort of dig into, let's talk about the history in this community. We just sort of act as if where we are today is where we are. Uh, I think that happens when you talk about uh, income levels. You know, I mean, no, everybody rolls their eyes when you talk about slavery, like, oh God, are we gonna revisit this boring topic? But at the end of the day, we know that slavery is highly correlated or being enslaved, highly correlated to not having grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents who were compensated for their labor. We know redlining kept people out of neighborhoods that would increase in value. We know certain jobs were not allowed to be available to certain people of color. You know, all those things add up to a lack of income, a lack of wealth that's translated generation to generation, right? So nobody wants to dig into the math of that. They just want to talk about, well, that's how that community is. You know, so to me, again, an opportunity in a documentary is to connect all those dots to make sure people understand that, that history is, is relevant and living and the effects of what happened 150, 250 years ago, you know, are still felt by people today. That, that to me is a tremendous opportunity. So I think the media does a, often a really crappy job on that. Well, Dad, this is Andrew. Um, I, you know, you're, you're uniquely positioned to cover a lot of these stories. You have Irish roots. You have African-American roots. You have Latino roots. One of the stories, though, that you covered that really stood out for me is something I identify with because I'm a Tulane graduate. You covered Katrina, and you really brought a lot of context to what was happening in the city of New Orleans and to the people there and and how the, and including in the aftermath is it that sort of experience that took you away from uh, anchoring a big show at a big network you 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 had a pretty big risk by leaving a network job to produce documentaries and experiment with 360 video it, what inspired that you know, it's interesting. It really didn't. I, I, I uh, covered Katrina in 2005, and I left CNN in 2013. So it took a while. I definitely, it definitely made me realize that there was more to the opportunity in journalism than fronting a show, which I love to do. I absolutely loved anchoring a show. I loved working at CNN. I thought it was fantastic. The, the reason I left CNN was that we had a new boss come in, came in who really decided that he wanted a different morning anchor team. And they asked me to stay on, but I, I was not a big fan of staying on for something that was undefined. And I felt I had a pretty good reputation as a journalist, and I could build, uh, I could piece together work that I wanted to do and things that I thought were important and relevant, um, and which we've been able to do pretty well. So I think the industry changed as well. I was able to work, and I am still able to work. Uh, Unexclusively, you know. Usually, you work for CNN. Everything you do is for CNN. Then you get a new job. You go work for NBC. Everything you do is for NBC. Uh, now I, I work for a lot of different people, and I can kind of work on the projects that I like. And and I'm not sure if I had left five years earlier, I would have been able to make that work because things have really shifted in our industry. You have so many more digital platforms that, you know, to do projects that live on a bunch of different different platforms is pretty typical now. Um, but I, I, I really loved anchoring. I'll make have an announcement in the next couple of weeks around a new show that I'm doing, which I'm not allowed to talk about, and they'll kill me if I mention it. Um, so I, you know, but I've been waiting to get the company up and running 
and, and learning on a very steep learning curve about running something, which by the way isn't something they do not teach you as a reporter or an anchor, uh, you know, HR and hiring. Um, but it's been really, really fun to pick and choose your partners and pick and choose the stories that you think are interesting and then try to figure out the math around how do you distribute it, how do you fund it, um, you know, what's the format and the shape that it will take. It's been really, really interesting. I've, I've enjoyed it thoroughly, but I'll continue to run the company and then work on this, this, um, this show as well. But I, I've, liked, I've liked reporting and doing other projects all at the same time. I've always liked doing multiple things. Katrina was an amazing story. And, you know, Katrina was, I think, a story about America um, that in a lot of ways, you know, the America we don't see. And I think reporters have a real opportunity and again, maybe the election has been a good example of that. I've read so many reporters talking about, like, I didn't know where any of these Trump supporters came from. You know, you should be surprised at yourself and, and ashamed. You know, if, if there's a whole bunch of people who you didn't know existed and your job is reporter, you know, that's pretty shameful. And I think for Katrina, there was a lot of that too. You know, where do these people come from? It's like, well, they, they live in New Orleans and they're stuck here. And it's a, it's a shame that we don't give their stories a voice. Well, if you tell us what show you're going to be anchoring, we promise we won't tell anybody about it. <laughs> Let me tell you something. These people keep a secret so well that they would so know the leak is me. <laughs> We've been negotiating for a while. I'm, I'm amazed at just how good they are at keeping a secret. So, no, can't do it. But more, more to the point, though, like, what does it mean today to be a multi-platform journalist? It's awesome. I tell you, that the even more interesting than being a multi-platform journalist is being responsible for the structure, the fundraising, and the distribution of the content. So it's much more than just, hey, I appear here, and I'm over here, and you can catch me here, and I'm working on this. I mean, that's, that's hard, and that's just logistically challenging. But really, to me, the fun part um, is the deal. So how do you structure a deal? We're doing a project, actually, that's going to um, run in November. It'll be a joint venture between PBS News, WebMD, and probably Mike, where we're bringing together all these different platforms. So that's the multi-platform part. But the doing of the deal, that part is actually incredibly interesting. And figuring out the distribution model of that uh, is, is phenomenal. So I've really enjoyed that part. And I'm sure that's a, a gig that will be interesting when I'm 70 and 75 and 80 and 85, well, and maybe 100 if I live that long, um, you know, where you don't have to necessarily be in front of the camera. You can be doing really interesting projects around getting content on a lot of platforms. Soledad O'Brien in a changing communications landscape. She seems to be touching all the bases and, uh, and doing quite well at it. Soledad, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. And for Andrew Schwartz of CSIS, this is Bob Schieffer. If you like this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Visit us at CSIS.org. And check out the Schieffer College of Communication at schieffercollege.tcu.edu.